0: Welcome to the Healing Ground Movement, a podcast dedicated to revolutionizing how we think about our bodies and our health. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, DC, and I have lived my life in pursuit of holistic healing and care that goes beyond symptom management. If you've been listening and like what you're hearing, head over to your favorite platform and leave us a review so we can reach more people with our important message. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Healing Ground Movement podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carly Hudson. And with us today, we have Dr. Reed Pierce. Thank you for joining us. And Dr. Pierce is an internal medicine physician now practicing as a hospitalist who has a passion for redesigning the systems we use to support healthcare and health. This work is fundamentally about focusing on human experience for all people involved in the healing journey. I love that fundamental value that you bring. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having
1: me, Carly. Awesome.
0: I, we got to talk for a little bit, Oh gosh, about a month ago. And it's just one of those conversations about um, what's changing in hospitals and what's changing in healthcare that I am so excited to dive into more today. Um, but before we go there, we always have our getting to know you question, which is just a silly idea of when was movement first fun for you when you Ooh, remember enjoying movement? When
1: was movement, movement first fun for me? Um, you know, probably the first time I was cognizant of movement. And shifting from movement being not fun to being fun Mm -hmm. is when I was eight. Um, So I uh, had, for most of my childhood, come to Colorado in the summers. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Texas. And we would come up and hike every summer. Um, And I, unfortunately, when I was eight, had a hiking injury where I broke my my leg, my left femur. Oh, your
0: femur. um, Wow.
1: And had to be airlifted off the mountain, sort of a whole big... (laughs) Can I ask um, how
0: you did that? That's impressive to break a femur. So,
1: yeah, my... um, my family uh, has had uh, sort of a summer cabin that's uh, kind of west of Boulder for, for three generations now. And nice. uh, we had set out to climb Long's Peak, which my dad and I had never done. We were with some other people. Unfortunately, another climber knocked a rock loose that fell and hit me in the leg and broke my leg. So, um, so I had... You know, some surgical repair, and mm-hmm. then I was in a cast for you know six weeks. And then when I finally got the cast off, I remember being so excited because <laughs> you know I was going to be able to move again. But it, moving was really hard because my leg hadn't been moving for. And you
2: had
0: been immobilized up to the hip. That's for that. right
1: for for like eight weeks from injury to when the cast came off. And so I had to do that was the first time I ever had to do physical therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember as one of the sort of. You know, eight-year-old physical therapy exercises that I think my dad took and kind of modified. He eventually, after I got some strength back, uh, would take me out to the basketball hoop at our house and say, Mm -hmm. we're going to do right-handed layups because you have to jump off your left leg. So you're going to rehab it that way. Nice. And I remember the point at which that changed from being kind of scary and painful to actually being fun again when I could feel the confidence Uh um, and the balance coming back. And that's probably, that's my first, you know, explicit memory of movement being fun.
0: I love that. And we do hear stories kind of as we interview more guests about... About when you have movement taken away from you in that regard mm-hmm. and have to earn it back, there's a whole nother ownership and joy of finally getting that freedom back in your body. And, and importantly, that trust too, Right. because when you have that injury, it's very easy to be like, well, it let me down once before, you know, once bitten, twice shy, right. cool. Yeah. Well, very nice. And so then how did that lead you into the world of healthcare and hospitals?
1: So, you know, it's interesting. I, um, I think probably when I chose to go into medicine, I hadn't anchored it to, you know, that mm-hmm. experience of you know, physical trauma and recovery, although I suspect strongly that has something to do with it. Mm -hmm. Um, when I finished college, I had majored in chemistry and history. So fundamentally was kind of confused as a human about how I wanted to be in the (laughs) world, (laughs) what I wanted to think about every day,
0: or all your paths were open. I mean, that's another great way to look at it. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, and so I ended up doing a policy internship in Washington, DC, where I was placed somewhat by chance with the department of health and human services. And that's Mm -hmm. what kind of introduced me to health and healthcare as a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I had thought up until that time I was probably going to be a teacher or a college professor because I had people in my life who had really inspired me who had those roles. And I realized that, you know, this thing that is – healing and healthcare was just fascinating at every level, from a policy level, from a finance level, in terms of how it impacts our humanity, how it either inhibits or enables what we can do in our lives. There's obviously the science Mm -hmm. of, you know, biomedicine and how we think about applying that. So that really set me down the road Uh, to medical school, and when I got to medical school, I think I held a lot of those interests in these broader points of view. Uh, The science to me was always really interesting. Um, Fortunately, I was in a place where the people who were my teachers, this was at UCSF in California, were very um, not only open about, but also curious about what does the science not yet tell us? So some of the first studies were coming out at that time about things like acupuncture and chemotherapy, and what does that you know, uh, what does that look like? Um, these ideas about movement and well-being, which were sort of interest to me at the time. And so I think I've always been mm-hmm. interested in being in a field where I could um, stay in touch with a lot of different pieces of what it means to be, uh, you know, to try to be a healer and to be in the healing professions. And so I was attracted to general internal medicine and then into the hospital as a hospitalist because I just found the care delivery system as as such a fascinating kind of organism in and of itself in terms Mm -hmm. of what it does, what it could do, what it doesn't do. And how do we make that thing better over time?
0: Oh, that's fantastic. I love. Well, first I just love that you had teachers that can focus in on the, what is the science not telling us yet? Because so often as we go through healing and medical training, there is so much that we need to know and need to know how to do correctly, that to leave space for the, what can we yet learn and how can we yet change our mind about protocol is such a phenomenal foundation to get your education on. So I just think that's incredible that you had that. That's not um, an answer I hear very often. It's usually when we've had doctors, You know, on the podcast, it's a, you know, I learned the way to do things. And then later I had questions and my teachers weren't answering them for me. So I went and found them myself. Right. So what a unique and fantastic experience to have that seed planted in school. I just think that... That made my day. Yeah, um, But when you talk about all of the um, aspects of health care that come into the, the systems and the financial piece with the hospitalist side of it, it's something that I'm really starting to learn more and more about and realizing that all of our best intentions on what the protocol and care is has everything to do with access and finances and, um, patient and doctor burnout. So all of these pieces that you're looking at in the hospitals now really are, um, you know, fundamental to healing and, and seeing an improvement in the health of our country.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So tell us a little bit what a hospitalist is and, and what your role is now. Cause it's been changing.
1: Yeah. So hospital medicine is in the world of, um, mm-hmm. Uh, sort of medical professions uh, one of the newer fields Mm -hmm. Um, people have been doing a version of this for a long time but it really has been in the last kind of 20 to 25 years that we've had internal medicine or family medicine or pediatric physicians and those are still the three most common um, types of doctors who become hospitalists who said you know instead of seeing patients in my clinic and maybe doing home visits and then also seeing them when they're in the hospital What would it look like if we put one of us in the hospital all the time
2: Hmm.
1: Um, so that as patients come in, um, we really know not only our individual patients, but we know the hospital as a system and how it operates, uh, how to move through it. So people have described hospitalists as kind of the orchestra conductor or the quarterback. They've used those analogies. I really think of uh, a core competency of the hospitalist as being uh, really kind of being like uh, a systems anthropologist and systems ambassador. Um, So there's a lot of coordination, trying to help patients and families move through the hospital portion of care and then back to whatever the next steps are, Mm -hmm. um, being a guide not only being the physician or the clinician who can make a diagnosis and prescribe treatment. So um, a big part of the job is doing traditional medical diagnostics and therapy, but a, another big part of the job is then talking with all the other players, uh, the physical therapists, the nurses, the pharmacists, the specialists, uh, maybe somebody in the financial counselor office mm-hmm. or social work office uh, to try to meet the needs and to build a care plan that makes sense for patients. That's kind of what's at the heart of hospital medicine. And so we've we've talked uh, in the field about this idea that um, just as many physician groups have sort of a procedure they do. Orthopedic surgeons fix bones. Uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, you know, work on the heart and the lungs. That the you know the the procedure of the hospitalist is the ability to try to make that system mm-hmm. work better to fix the system, um, as opposed to directing our you know procedural or fix it focus solely to the patient and the diagnosis.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And I certainly see, it's it's kind of a a self-created network that happens in the alternative medicine, so in the chiropractic and acupuncture world where in, there's a small piece that we're only as good as the network that we're in mm-hmm. because we are never just the one fix for our patient. And being able to refer a patient and, and co-work with a nutritionist and co-work with an acupuncturist, and to have that same accessibility and interconnectivity within the hospital, you know, we, we are more than the sum of our parts. And it sounds like you are, are conducting and making sure all of that is managed, including down to accessibility and you know, financial ramifications of the care they're receiving. Mm-hmm has a really a holistic approach to health in that regard.
1: Yeah, that's a nice way to think about it.
0: So, so yeah, I know you worked for um, Denver Anschutz for a while, and now you have a new position in, in Texas, at a hospital in Texas, yes? Yes. Yeah, so tell us about that.
1: Yeah, so mm-hmm. I um, spent uh, sort of the eight years up till now working mm-hmm. at uh, the CU Anschutz campus, uh, worked in hospital medicine, did a lot of these kinds of things, so a lot mm-hmm. of work on how do we redesign the care delivery system. How do we put humanity back into the <laughs> process? You know, what are the things that we're missing? Um, recently, took a job at the Dell Medical School where uh, I'm in uh, the chief of hospital medicine, so lead a group of hospitalists, and also I'm working on um, how do we develop our people. So we call that faculty development and academics mm-hmm. and well-being also. So that's a big piece of this, which is a, a huge interest of mine, um, particularly in the last kind of 10 years of my career when that has become really foundational to everything that that I think about in my day job.
0: Absolutely. And when you talk about putting the humanity back in healthcare, and you're talking about both the physician side and the patient care side, Mm because there's burnout in both places. What are you observing and what are you seeking to change?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I've observed, which got me interested in these questions, Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, as I was spending time going into different parts of the healthcare environment Mm -hmm. and meeting with people who wanted to improve something. Maybe it was a clinic that said, we want better access for our patients or um, an operating room that said, you know, we want to create a better culture of communication and we have a a project to improve that. Um, What would come up in doing the work were all these comments about, you know, uh, a bunch of our teammates quit in the last year or people are just really tired and exhausted and burned out. Um, And it became clear to me that that was this, phenomenon that just kind of, you know, cut through and through Mm -hmm. uh, the work that people were trying to do on the healing or care delivery side. Um, And then, you know, what's really interesting is I started to dig into what have people written about this? Incredibly common Mm -hmm. all across the country, all across the world. We see symptoms of this in a bunch of different measurements that we do. So if you look at employee engagement surveys, you see that a lot of people Really don't love the work they do every day, and they feel like the work actually makes them tired and takes away from other parts of their lives. Uh, if you look at burnout um, in most professions, it's you know double digits. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many professions, it's getting close to fifty percent, and in healthcare, mm-hmm. uh, it's currently still at forty to fifty percent for basically the entire workforce everywhere we measure it. Uh, so it's not just physicians and nurses; this applies to mm-hmm. therapists and leaders, and um, you know that. Then creates, I think, this interesting question, or it did for me around uh, well, what's going on there, and why, how are we not attending to the whole human being in the work, and how do we need to be considering that um, mm-hmm. as we're doing things that are in pursuit of healing, whether that's at the individual, you know, clinician person level, um, or we're talking about creating a healing workplace environment where people come to work every day and they're like, I like being with these people. I'm better for being with these people or healthcare systems are saying, how can we promote healing in the community? So, um, that's sort of been my journey. And, um, you know, the, the scientific data now on this, I think is incredibly interesting because, If I take healthcare as one example, when you look at lack of well-being or you look at burnout, when well-being is low and burnout is high, basically all the other things that we measure and care about from sort of a business performance standpoint gets worse when those numbers uh, go up. Uh, We also see that in sort of clinical outcomes. So Mm -hmm. if people aren't doing well as human beings, the surgery can go great. The medicine can can be something they take every day, but actually the ability to do the things they want in their lives goes down. Function and recovery Mm -hmm. is less. So this idea of thinking about humanity, Mm -hmm. what are all the facets of that, I think becomes really important to accomplishing what we want if our goal is to heal people.
0: Yeah, because the healing process of it is always what's happening internally in the patient itself. Cause you know, the, the incision and the removal of something cancerous or something necrotic that we have to get out of the body, that's just taking away the thing that was in the way right. of that person's health, but it's still up to them to move well, eat well. And there are, there's so much research to suggest that even our, our mental health and our outlook is is probably the most important part of that healing. Mm-hmm. Because if, if we have that depression and anxiety, you know, the why bother approach, our body isn't going to heal as fast. And Mm -hmm. I think the research around that is really kind of incredible. Um, but it's interesting to see that it is across the board that we're seeing this burnout cycle and that when we can look at the value in the humanity of, of the individual, this isn't just some, you know hippy fluffy dream of shouldn't we all just love our jobs it does come down to the bottom line and when healthcare care costs go up that reduces accessibility and when um, uh, mistakes in the workplace go up i mean that's a problem no matter work, what workplace it is but in a hospital i mean that can be injurious or, or life and death if, if little details aren't paid attention to mm-hmm. because of things like burnout so there's huge repercussions from just not feeling supported in your job
1: I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, everywhere we look, uh, when you ask that question, what you see is that – You know, our ability to do what we want is diminished and the likelihood that we make mistakes or don't do the work well goes up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this becomes, I think, one of the central themes that we need to work on in pursuit of performance. Not only how I feel when I go to work every day or how, you know, my patients and families feel when they interact with me. Those are also really important parts of the experience Mm -hmm. because they play into what you were talking about. Do I trust you know, this environment, this person. Mm-hmm. Am I more or less anxious about what's going on with me than I was before we talked? Um, those emotional experiences contribute a tremendous amount, but um, these other things we can measure also happen in, in tandem.
2: Yeah.
0: So that is such a big, hairy web to start to untangle. So what are you and your colleagues doing to to start down that process?
1: Yeah, well, one, uh, so I, I think your point is, is so well made that this is something that it feels like we're early... In the journey of um, discovering and kind of working on, um, you know, there are, I think, ways people have thought about holistic well being probably since the beginning of, you know, human beings as a thinking species. Uh, yeah. So you find this in a lot of religious philosophies, you find it in many of the healing philosophies. If you look back at, um, in essence, all sort of forms of the healing Mm -hmm. sciences and arts that I have looked at, there are versions of this. But in the modern environment where uh, our structures are uh, different than they were a century ago, our technologies have really advanced. What the science allows us to do is is really new for us Mm -hmm. compared to 100 or 500 years ago. Um, I think how we think through this is part of The first step. Um, So, a couple of interesting things have come forward. One is uh, this really powerful idea of pathogenesis and salutogenesis. So, Mm -hmm. that's grounded in you know clinical practice for many of us. But I think it took probably five years of me being in this space before I heard the conversation start to turn towards this idea that hey, if we're focused on burnout, which is sort of a pathogenic idea, Mm -hmm. and we focus solely on getting that to zero, meaning let's remove the bad stuff. So Cut it out. Cut it out, right? Get rid of it. Poison it. Does that actually get us to thriving and Mm -hmm. to the sort of holistic, humanistic – world that we want. The answer is no. So there's this parallel set of things we need to be working on that I'll call salutogenic. So how do we grow the good stuff?
0: And can I interrupt you for a second? Because we've talked about pathogenics and salutogenic before on the podcast. It's a concept that I am like married to now, but could you give us the the technical difference between the two as you see it applying to what you're doing?
1: Yeah. So Mm -hmm. maybe I'll give a clinical example and then Mm -hmm. uh, in well-being. So um, Pathogenesis uh, would focus on, um, you know, what's broken with you what can we fix. Mm -hmm. Um, So if, um, you know, if you have um, high cholesterol, then my goal is to get your cholesterol number down. I'm going to give you a medicine to reduce that. And if we get the cholesterol level below a certain level, then we're good Mm -hmm. because we've reduced the risk. The number looks okay to me. Now, there's a whole parallel set of conversations about, well, how is your diet? How is your exercise? Are you living in a well way as a human being Mm -hmm. um, that we didn't even address? Because I just looked at a number, I gave you a medicine, and I got that number below a certain threshold. Mm -hmm. So salutogenic might look at that same phenomenon and say, um, what would a sort of holistic and healthy approach be to eating well, to exercising often, uh, to sleeping better? All those things actually impact how your body processes fat and cholesterol. Mm-hmm. Um, and can we get you doing more of those things that are good, not only for your cholesterol, but for you as a human being, for your sleep, for your mood, for your uh, physical stamina, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take that idea and you move it over to well-being, um, we can look at healthcare and we can say, gosh one of the major pain points that seems to have arisen um, is the fact that uh, our introduction of digital technology and electronic health record which on balance is a good thing because Mm -hmm. now nobody has to read my handwriting which is great (laughs) Um, and we can send messages back and forth whereas used to. You would have to print out your copies of your medical record and take them elsewhere.
0: I still do. I'm still on paper charts. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so
1: that's part of the journey, the promise, yeah. right? What that thing has done is it has introduced this phenomenon where the human beings trying to have a conversation about health and well-being mm-hmm. now are distracted by the need to type a bunch of stuff into a computer. Yeah. Um, there's sort of this third person, this digital uh, you know, partner in the room, and that feels like it takes away. So what we need to do... Mm-hmm pathogenic is to reduce the disruption of the electronic medical record so that we can connect again as human beings, and that's good for me, and it's good for you, and we do our work better, et cetera. Um, well, that's fine, but um, what about salutogenic things that we can do that are good for well-being beyond just reducing the hassle of the electronic medical record? Like, um, does having a gratitude practice in our clinical team or in the you know, clinician-patient relationship impact us in a way that actually is good for us as humans. Well, it turns out there's science that says it does. It, it affects a whole host of measures if we're looking for stuff that's going well in our daily work and we're calling that out um, and we're celebrating that as individuals mm-hmm. and as teams. So um, working on the EHR will never get you to a gratitude practice uh, yeah. directly. So this, this sort of dual system of saying. Where are the things we can reduce that will improve well-being in the care delivery system? And what are the things that we need to grow because they're salutogenic? Um, A lot of the stuff that is coming out right now in in the grow category is around uh, a lot of the positive psychology movement that um, has been out in the literature for now 20 or 30 years.
0: That's fantastic. And I like that looking at that in in that pathogenic versus salutogenic is that salutogenic um, offering or solution rarely looks like the thing that you're trying to reduce. So it's, it's a little bit of a long walk for a short drink of water to see how it would work. But if you have say that gratitude practice and that looking at that positivity, then there's less of a frustration of, I just need to get this done. Can you, and like, that just felt like a parenting moment for me too. It's like, I'm grateful about everything. So now I have the patience to take that moment, which really doesn't lengthen the visit or the interaction that long, but it's that pause for eye contact. Mm -hmm. It's that pause for listening and understanding that wasn't really the EHR's fault that it was gone. But it became a very easy tool to use in its place mm-hmm. versus that gratitude practice or that positivity. Now I have that breath, that lack of burnout to turn to you human to human. Right. Cause that's what we want to get back is the human connection.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the, all of those sorts of things. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing that I think is very interesting is, uh, if you look at, um, stress forms of stress in, uh, in medicine and healthcare and healing, um, we have these moments where stress occurs. So part of it may be that someone comes to see you or me Mm -hmm. um, feeling very stressed about his or her situation. And that stress gets transferred, right? As we start to have that conversation. Absolutely. Or it could be the other way around. I need to share some information about what I'm finding in the course of um, you know, the clinical diagnostic workup, or you said something and you thought it was this condition, but actually now I'm worried about something else and I'm breaking a form of bad news, which is stressful because you weren't thinking about or worrying about that thing, but I need to tell you, hey, we maybe need to focus on this. Yeah. So stress comes up all the time in our work, and if you take these um, positive practices, so gratitude being one of them, and there are a whole host of them we can talk through in a moment, Um, If you have those embedded, um, what happens to us at a human level is um, when I feel stress, uh, my recovery from that stress actually goes faster and better. So my heart rate comes down sooner. My uh, stress hormones come down sooner. My ability to come back into a stance where mm-hmm. I can be open and try to connect as a human as opposed to be in that headspace of I'm stressed, I'm worried, I need to protect myself, I need to sort of back up from whatever's going on, that window closes faster. Mm-hmm. And it allows us to get back into this humanity piece sooner. Um, so there's something real to this. It's not just we're trying to make people feel good. Yeah. Uh, there's a clinical effect to these salutogenic practices around well-being
0: well i remember uh, learning about a concept that it's not about like how much stress you know what big events of stress are coming into your life it's about the micro doses of mm-hmm. stress stress and having that threshold and you can think of it as any kind of hairpin trigger that if you have had micro doses of stress all morning all day and you haven't done anything to drop that back down then the next micro dose, whatever it is and you know as a as a clinician Unfortunately, you have to give bad news with some sort of frequency. This should be old hat. It's still stressful. So even though it's a microdose, it pushes above that limit. Mm-hmm. And then you can keep pushing higher and higher and higher. And without the reset, all those little things do start to add up and then it shows up, like you're saying in the physiology of, of heart rate and and, and cortisol and when the stress mo- hormones are constantly high, it affects our cholesterol, it's all downstream effects mm-hmm. just from not taking a moment to find that those positivity practices, right? not just, but for an example. <laughs> right.
1: And this, this idea, and this is one of the other, I think, helpful shifts around how do we tackle this thing, this mm-hmm. big complex web. Um, early on, I think when people uh, were talking about burnout as a thing in healthcare, as an example, mm-hmm. um, a, a lot of the early conversation, if you go back and you read what people were writing, uh, were about these very important and also incredibly difficult to tackle I think of them as structural issues. So Mm -hmm. um, the payment model in medicine is not aligned with our core values and how we want to take care of people. It means that visits are shorter than they should be. Um, And until we solve that, I can't feel good about the work I do. My patients can't feel good about seeing me if I'm in the clinic. Or uh, the electronic health record, we talked about that thing. Until somebody fixes it, I'm just sort of a victim of, of the system. Um And what that mindset, I think, leads to is this hope that there's going to be like one, two, maybe three big things that suddenly change and then we can all be well again in our work. Instead, it's what you just mm-hmm. mentioned, Carly, which is small doses frequently. like that's mm-hmm. the rhythm we have to get into. And so these small doses of stress, how are we noticing those and working with those? And that's a great place where, you know, things like mindfulness and meditation have great science. You mm-hmm. know, notice, let it go, return to something else instead of just letting those microdoses stack up. Um, and then on the, you know, the, these healthy practices, how do you get small doses of things like gratitude or interest or awe or pride in my work on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. As opposed to saying, you know, uh, maybe I'll get an award two years from now and I'll feel good about my work for 10 minutes and that's enough to get yeah. me through the next two years.
0: I'll be miserable in my practice and tell you give me something shiny and that'll feel great for yeah. a minute. And go back to misery. <laughs>
2: right.
0: Yeah. Well, and I like when you're talking about, you know, we, we do have these big systems. And, you know, we've had um, uh, we had a fantastic conversation with Adam Corshane, who's a PA who does concierge medicine, um, talking about those those visits and the visit lengths. when you talk about the financial aspect of it all. These are all big system problems that do need a huge overhaul. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of them in this country right now. But I like how you framed it, that we seem to have this idea that we're waiting for a Herculean or or Superman to come in and remove the one big thing. But it does put us in this victim mentality. And that victim mentality, you know, I, I sort of associate that a little bit with a pathogenic approach, where something needs to be taken out of my way, mm-hmm. and I am powerless against it until somebody cuts it out or poisons it, versus this idea that we can help make things smaller and more manageable with the micro doses. Mm-hmm. So even a physician in, you know, a, a terrible hospital culture, you know, there, there are things that we can do in that, and same on the patient side as well. Mm-hmm. So you kind of went through a quick list there of those positivity practices. What, what are some of the things that you talk about doing in those microdoses?
1: Yeah, so... Um you know, there, if you look at the positive psychology literature, there's a whole host of these mm-hmm. um, positive practices, which are usually tied to some positive emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a, a number of studies out there about how do you cultivate those things? Um, so, you know, a lot of people, I think, have probably heard of three good things as a practice. Uh, it's been widely popularized uh, well beyond medicine. So the science on it's quite powerful, that if you, you know, in the two hours before you go to bed, mm-hmm. can name and write down three good things that happened to me today. What was my role in those and how did it make me feel? Mm-hmm. Which is a pretty short reflection. That then, when you go to sleep, that gets consolidated at a neuronal level where uh, gratitude literally is kind of amplified in your brain and, and it has a positive effect on stress uh, and a positive effect on well being. And doing that even for 14 days still has measurable impacts on mm-hmm. depression and on self-perceived well-being on validated scales six months to 12 months later.
0: Oh, so you just do it for two weeks and you still see that measurable difference six, uh, half a year to a full year after. You do. Um, and so amazing. when you think
1: about depression in this country as a major clinical condition, mm-hmm. and you think about how much uh, effort we spend on it, uh, how much anxiety and stress it causes people, and how much money we spend on it. Mm-hmm. Um that's a pretty powerful, cheap, and readily available intervention for people um, that in adult studies, uh, the data suggests the impact on depression is uh, pretty close to what you get with SSRIs. Um, So, you know, here's that contrast against salutogenic, pathogenic. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one example. There is uh, a lot of ongoing research in healthcare specifically about, well, how, what does it look like if you have a daily hope practice? or a pride practice or an awe practice. So uh, I'll give you two examples of what that can look like. Uh, My clinical group at University of Colorado, we were playing with this a few years ago We said, you know, our routine monthly meeting uh, has a lot of the usual monthly meeting stuff, which feels uh, either necessary and boring or uh, unpleasant. Um, (laughs) To put it kindly. (laughs) So we need to look at the finances, but that's never fun to do. It's all Mm -hmm. stress-inducing. It feels a little bit beyond our control. Uh, We need to look at, you know, data that the hospital wants us to review. Uh, We got to talk about the schedule. We need to hear uh, updates from people. Um, and sometimes there were celebratory things in there, but it felt like a business meeting. Yeah, um, And so we had this idea of like, what? how could we inject just like three to five minutes of planned group reflection that gets us in that headspace of, here's why I went into medicine. Here's why I decided to become a healer. Um, what's the purpose thing for me? And do I experience that anywhere? So we, we started this kickoff to the meeting called Something Awesome, where we would have one member of our group come and share a short three- to five-minute story about here's where in my clinical practice in the last month I suddenly had that moment where I'm like, wow, that is why I went into this line of work. That
0: makes me smile. Yeah, just, and I,
1: here's how it touched me sort of yeah. at a soul level. Um, and that was... A, really powerful, and B, a small way, it didn't take a lot of time, where Mm -hmm. we could tap back into, with some frequency, this idea of a positive, kind of salutogenic component of what we do. Mm -hmm. And recognize that this thing we do, taking care of other human beings, is way bigger than just the data that shows up in the monthly meeting and our call schedule and all those other things that are important parts of you know, the operations of the business.
0: And it kind of informs too that in order to, it, it connects the two because mm-hmm. in order to have that amazing experience of why I got into medicine in the first place, it requires schedule and finance and overhead to have provided that room and that patient accessibility for you to have that moment. That's right. And so it, it feeds into itself rather than finances just being that awful thing we have to deal with once a month—they are part of healthcare mm-hmm. in that way.
1: Yeah, it's it's a dimension of what we do. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's one example. Um, I think another really interesting one is. Um, Uh, how do you cultivate sort of pride in what you do every day in Mm -hmm. in this work? And so, uh, was doing some work in the last uh, year or year and a half where, uh, we had borrowed this from, uh, a clinic, uh, where we'd seen it and then shared it with others. So, um, this really cool idea that uh, what a clinic had done was to, to create, um, basically a thing they called fridge worthy moments. So they, the members of the clinic, the people who work there, yeah. and they would invite their patients to bring in photographs of stuff that they were proud about in their lives and put it up on either a, like a cutout version of a like <laughs> fridge on the wall or if they yeah. had a fridge in the office, an actual fridge. And it created conversations about, oh, tell me about that photo. That's new since I was here last time. Like, what is that going on with your family? Or mm-hmm. it looked like, you know, you climbed a mountain or you went on a scuba diving trip. Um, Another avenue for human connection, for knowing one another, for building trust, um, and for celebrating the things that we all aspire to and that Mm -hmm. we do in our lives that are part of that good stuff that we want as part of our holistic humanity and well-being. And and just using that artifact of photographs on a fridge or a fake fridge as permission to get into that space, as opposed to let's start with the usual form. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What are you here for? Yeah. You know, and then we just fall into that routine where we miss this whole opportunity to explore more of our humanity.
0: And I love the, the part about bring, having the patients bring that in too. Mm-hmm. So having their aspect of it, because I think particularly when you talk about that so many visits are like five to seven minutes long, you don't get to hear, or you don't have the opportunity to ask about that. And I think that's one of my favorite parts about having 30 minute visits here in my office is that you do get those fridgeworthy moments and those stories. Mm-hmm. And that again, creates the layer of partnership and relationship between the physician and the patient, you know, that you didn't just, you know, do your job replacing a knee and now they're gone, but that knee replacement, let them climb Mount Evans. Mm -hmm. And that is a story. That's a fridge worthy story that you were a part of. It builds that partnership in there as well. Mm So when we talk about that, because it's not just doctor burnout, and I was really fascinated when you brought this up when we were chatting before, but there's that patient burnout side of things as well as they go through the medical system and kind of feel like a, a cog in in the whole process. How does that start to bridge over to the patient side of it too?
1: Yeah. Um so this I think gets us into another dimension of how do we work on this mm-hmm. burnout and well being thing. So um, you know, part of the framework that is emerging is, uh, while this is not going to be everything, because we've got more to discover, you know, reliably four dimensions of human experience impact um, a sense of well-being or burnout, if we Mm want to think of it as the opposite, in sort of the healthcare journey. So one of those is the system itself. So how much hassle and irritation and stress and effort Mm -hmm. do I have to experience just to get into a conversation and to get down a path for my own well-being? Mm -hmm. Um, And that comes in You know, a million forms people can name. You know, what's going on with my insurance company? How hard is it to get into this clinic? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what's the wait time? Once I'm there, do they actually have what I need? Do I have to get referred out to someone else? Um, Et cetera, et cetera.
0: Accessibility in language or um, disability services coming along
1: with that as well. That's right. Mm -hmm. So sort of any form and dimension of what people perceive as hassle all right, and mm-hmm. going through their journey. Um, so there's a whole dimension of work, and we can come back to it, around that piece that's vital to, to make well-being go up mm-hmm. and burnout go down. Um, there also are individual level factors. So um, what we're learning is, you know, people do have individual set points around things like... Um, anxiety, mm-hmm. um, and so practices that help us with our individual stress and capacity to manage that stress. Um, so this is where things like good sleep and diet and exercise and meditation and movement, yoga, etc., come mm-hmm. into play. Um. There's a third dimension around team climate and culture. So human beings are very attuned to kind of what's the, what's the, the human temperature as I'm walking into this space. Do these people like each other? Is this going to be a kind, friendly, accepting space? Is it safe for me? Mm-hmm. Um, we're constantly scanning the environment for those sorts of cues. And so in the, in the healthcare environment, um, patients and families are constantly picking up on that. We try to measure that in the patient experience world. But clinicians and team members are picking up on that too, mm-hmm. um, right? Is this a team that I want to work with? Is today going to be a hard day because th- this person yells at me or won't listen to me or doesn't want to support me? And then lastly, Category 4, uh, it's very clear that there's a direct correlation, almost a linear correlation between the quality of leadership and burnout in the workforce. So, okay. if you have a leader who is doing things that promote well-being, um, your well-being goes up as well. If you have a leader who's engaging in uh, leadership behaviors that um, undermine well-being, burnout goes up. Uh, eventually, turnover goes up as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to think about how we're we working in all four of those dimensions. Um, and the systems of care piece is really important. So, any place we can find hassle, and we can remove that, that tends to be in pursuit of well-being and healing.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And, and having that, you know, changing the way leaders lead aspect of it as well, because so much of that, it sets the tone for, um, that community aspect, walking in and how do people get along and and what is the interactivity and, and how do I fit into this, um, that sort of creates each other mm-hmm. um, and and can also set up the ability to have um, new ideas that could take away that hassle. So it, it becomes kind of a chicken and the egg conversation mm-hmm. of, of just pick one and start going.
1: Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that part is really important. We're coming to realize that uh, part of the, I think, the challenge and the, the sort of awkward dance uh, to yeah. date has been, well, somebody's got to start somewhere and we're going to wait for the system people to do their thing and then we'll get to work on team climate or can you go fix that team issue over there? Mm-hmm. Until we solve that, we can't be working on the systems factors or leadership. And really, it's just about where you get on the merry-go-round. Like, pick yeah. one and then they start to play together. Um, and there are endless creative ways where we can say, how do we promote better leadership? Leadership that doesn't only get the job done, it also promotes humanity and well-being. Mm-hmm. You know, how do we do the same thing with our teams and how we talk to each other and we work together? How can we support individuals in pursuit of that and then what are the systems factors we need to to work on and how do we start with some systems factors that are more within our control than others because Mm -hmm. you can easily become paralyzed saying as we did earlier uh, you know until somebody fixes the reimbursement system or until somebody puts a a a readily accessible clinic in my neighborhood you know I just there's nothing I can do about it.
0: Yeah, but there there is so much you can do. And there there's a lot of research now and maybe you know you're familiar with some of the nuances about how emotional intelligence EQ is really one of the most important aspects to have in a leader that the technical intelligence can be taught and it can be adapted. Mm-hmm. But but when you are in charge of creating an environment that supports people, and goodness, especially a healing environment, because as you mentioned earlier on, patients coming in with their own levels of anxiety and depression and, and um, uh, resistance to care, I guess I could say, how they enter into that could either raise or lower their anxiety. And the biggest factor in that is your emotional intelligence to create a space that is in support of humanity versus burnout.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's an old saying. I know this from kind of the, the educational world. It's mm-hmm. one of those quotes that probably has existed in multiple uh you know theories or or bodies of knowledge Mm -hmm. um that people fundamentally you know they don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care and so that
0: you know that for
1: me is part of where emotional intelligence comes Mm -hmm. in recognizing that um even with all the science and the technology and the things that we can do for people it's about this Mm -hmm. human connection piece like what's going on with you at an emotional level what are you worried about what are you hopeful for um what are your values Where do you want to go with this? Mm -hmm. Until we get that stuff out in the open people don't feel truly safe and comfortable and cared for mm-hmm. and we often i think leap to conclusions about what sort of interventions that we want to do whether in care planning or in system redesign mm-hmm. there aren't the right interventions because it's not actually meeting this fundamental human need around which we should design because just as you said people develop a high level of skepticism quickly when they say whatever my human need is is not being met and the mm-hmm. thing you're bringing to me I, I don't see how that connects to what I'm actually feeling and where I wanna go with this. So of course I'm not gonna take that medication.
0: Yeah, and, and then if there's no follow through on the care plan, it becomes the fault of the care, but really it's the fault of the humanity around it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking even of an antic- anecdotal story that I had a patient recently who went to, um, had a procedure that she needed to get done and went to two doctors and both of them suggested the same procedure. And one of them she didn't get a good feeling from, didn't hear the right answers at the right pace or or whatever it was, didn't get that humanity connection. Mm -hmm. And the other one she did. And the surgery was an incredible success. They found something they weren't expecting that was the cause of root cause of several symptoms, and she is thrilled. And she will say to me, and she did say to me, is like, I am so glad I didn't go with that other guy Mm -hmm. because this one knew what he was doing. Mm -hmm. They were both, they were both suggesting the same care, Mm -hmm. but having that human aspect gave her the confidence and, you know, the, the happiness with the result of the intervention that she had. It mattered more who that person was than their technical skill. Of course, as a surgeon, you need good technical skill, but that human piece became the open door.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the patient experience world, um, there's this phrase that technical competence is largely assumed. Mm -hmm. So in, in. You know biomedicine in particular it, there's e- even though i think the safety science would suggest maybe we should be more skeptical of this belief that, than we actually are It's kind of like when we get on an airplane or we go to the grocery store and we say the airplane's going to get me to where i need to go safely it's just a matter of are we on time or not like mm-hmm. i'm not really that worried that the airplane is going to crash because that just doesn't happen often or i'm not really that worried when i go to the grocery store they're going to have no food like they're going to have food it's just a matter of picking out what i need
2: mm-hmm.
1: um that people come to see uh, you and me and assume that we have enough skill to do the thing that we're trained to do. And what they're actually looking for is versions of, you know, don't hurt me, help me, listen to me. Mm -hmm. And those factors really differentiate whether people then believe in the technical thing that gets done afterwards or not, uh, or even want to engage in it.
0: Absolutely. And I, I hear, I hope this isn't a judgment on my technical skill, but I hear so very rarely, man, that was a great adjustment. That technique was awesome. The speed was great. Your depth was perfect. Like I'm, you know, having flashbacks to my graduate program, here is you really listened, Mm -hmm. you really connected the dots. Thank you for the time to say these things. It's all the human aspect. And I feel like that is some of the bigger parts of healing that happens in this office. I think in all offices, really, because so much of our anxiety and our symptoms, because we have that somatic imprinting of the things that are bothering us. And by having it replay in our mind as this unheard signal, it gets louder and louder and louder because our brain is receiving that panic button that Mm -hmm. needs to be heard, like a, a small child's tantrum getting louder. And just having the opportunity to express it, can take it down to a manageable mm-hmm. level, whatever that management needs to be.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, the old sort of name it to tame it frame, right? <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. When we can name what we're feeling or what's happening, that mm-hmm. that allows us and then get into a different stance of how to deal with it. Um, and this idea, and what I think is really cool about it, you know, not only applies to how we interact as human beings on you know, the healing journey. Mm -hmm. Um, Slide this over to care system redesign, it's the same thing. So um, I've been in lots of situations where we had a sort of stated problem we were trying to fix and Mm -hmm. how the clinic runs or a unit runs or this care team is trying to do their work. Um, We have a great set of tools from Mm -hmm. engineering. We call it quality improvement science and healthcare. But the point is we've got all these tools and techniques we can pull off the shelf uh, and there's a really clear way to walk through this. And um, if you don't stop, periodically to say to the team of people, you know, how are people thinking? What, what are, how are you feeling? Um, You know, what's coming up for you? Like what's going on with us as humans, as we walk through this process of trying to redesign anything, the technical tool feels every time Um, people reject it, or they don't want to follow it, or they get in a stance of change resistance where they don't want to take the project forward. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's actually this sort of team and human side of the work in parallel with, all right, how do we fix that? issue that's coming up in the system, they have to go together, otherwise you don't get to the same degree of buy-in. And people will bail out of those mm-hmm. improvement projects almost every time, for the same reason they bail out of a care plan.
0: It's that self-sabotaging, when mm-hmm. really we should take the self out of it and make it more of that community humanistic side of it. Right. The 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 tribal sabotaging. I don't know. Yeah. 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 So there are
1: these representations of individual and collective. Yeah. In how we do this work.
0: So how do you cultivate that then?
1: So, you know, I think... If we're doing care system redesign, there are sort of community practices that I think are parallel to some of the individual human practices Mm -hmm. that we're talking about. So one is this um, very clear idea that listening and validating what people are saying so they feel heard is Mm -hmm. incredibly important. So some people in the improvement science world, they talk about that as a skill of facilitation. You could call it a skill of community or you could call it a skill of humanity. Um, It's just as valuable if we have a group of people having a conversation to, as we do with individual patient care, say, Things like, you know, that sounds really stressful or I'm hearing concern. Tell me more about that. Um, what's important to you? How did you experience this thing? Or, you know, what was, uh, what was the conclusion that you came to between our last meeting and this meeting? So that act of listening and surfacing how people are making meaning of the experience or the journey that they're on is this really vital skill that you can put into play. Um, another one is... I'm um, thinking about this work as um, a true partnership. So one of the other places I see redesign work fail is, uh, again, kind of like in clinical medicine, groups of people who work delivering care say, well, someone from somewhere is coming in and they're telling me how to do my work. Mm-hmm. They're giving me a plan for changing how we bring patients through the clinic or how we do call coverage, or how we handle after hours requests that come into the inbox, or any number of things. Um, And suddenly it's, you know, this other person expert outsider is pronouncing judgment and is directing me to do something instead of, Let's continue to reinforce this is a partnership. You know, the person who may be facilitating care system redesign has expertise in the tools and the methods, but really it's about how as a team we come to agreement mm-hmm. about where we want to go.
0: It's the difference of who do you think you are and thank you for your observation in this process.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that back and forth slides right over. Um, I think another thing we were talking about earlier that is really important is – um, this idea of moving away from anytime we want to redesign the care delivery system, what we're going to do is we're going to start with, all right, let's name all the problems <laughs> and let's only work on those things, but to do a balanced analysis of where are the hassles, but also where are the good things, where mm-hmm. are the joys, where are the moments of connection, because um, just because we uh, identify a hassle and eliminate it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to grow something else in its place mm-hmm. that people value and like in a human way in their work. So that's another important piece, I think, that sort of pathogenic, salutogenic thing slides right over to the group work.
0: Well, and it always surprises me um, how, and it happens in medicine, I think it happens in systems and business, that if you only focus on the thing that's not working, Mm -hmm. well, then you're focusing on something that's broken. And if you have this whole other category of things that are working, and you can say, well, I'm actually really good at organization over here, or I'm actually you know, in the healthcare sphere, is that maybe I am not great at preparing my own meal but I am really great at movement. Like, how can you take the thing that is working and use the skills necessary to make that work and slide it over to the thing that's broken? Mm -hmm. Because you do have skills that you're maybe just not thinking of adapting. Mm -hmm. But by only focusing on the broken thing and forgetting that anything ever went well ever, it's just broken and you don't know how to fix it. Right. And it's a dead end. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's more sort of expansive and creative way of thinking, mm-hmm. um, and I, that that reminds me of this other thing that I think we you know we sort of come in and out of knowing in, in clinical care mm-hmm. um, that um, you know what matters to the other person. That's really where the energy is going to come from, as mm-hmm. opposed to what's the matter with you? What's your presenting <laughs> symptom? Yeah, um, and when we can sort of connect those two things, you know, what mm-hmm. are you worried about? What's your goal? What's your value? That's where motivation, intrinsic motivation comes from for people to say, okay, I am going to commit to doing this, you Mm -hmm. know, therapeutic intervention or to walking every day or to changing my diet. Uh, Not because somebody told me to do it, because I see how it's aligned with this thing that I care about. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a, I have a colleague who's a a pain specialist and he has this great story about someone who, um, when they got into that space of what really matters to you. And this person said, you know, it gives me purpose and meaning in my life to be able to work on my home because that's one of the ways in which it feels like I can visibly express that I'm taking care of my family yeah. and my chronic pain prevents me from doing that. And, um, you know, part of the reason I want a prescription for a medication is I want to feel better so that I can go back to working in my home. And, and when my, my colleague was able to say, well, you know, there's a whole movement set of uh, tools around therapy, chiropractor interventions, et cetera, where I think we can accomplish the same thing. He suddenly was very open to it because he's like, yeah. well, if that gets me there, mm-hmm. then now I'll go down that path. So you take that idea, move it over to improvement science, same sort of thing comes up. So thinking about, and I think of it a lot as, if you're going to get a team together to try to improve something in the care delivery system, let's pause for a moment and talk about what do we value? When are we at our best? Where does the energy in our work come from? And how is this thing we're proposing we need to go fix or we need to change or we need to redesign harness that positive energy so we can mm-hmm. get more of that? Um, that's the only way that we get to sustainable change because it takes work yeah. to make a change. And you're exactly right. If all we do is look at some number or some process and say, that's so broken, um, I'm tired thinking about it, and now we got to try to fix it, and I'm not even sure if it's going to get me where I want to go. Those group projects stall every single time.
0: Absolutely. Well, and th- I like that the, the, two paths that you just put out there because it does address the side of uh, patient care, but also within the systems aspect itself is meeting people where they are at, mm-hmm. you know, finding that value place of where, from where they want to heal. From where they want to improve, instead of as as you put it, kind of the the what's wrong with you mm-hmm. or oh what was the phrase that you just use is what's the matter you, oh what's the matter with you versus what matters to you, mm-hmm. that's meeting them at their place of change and what the buy in is and that applies within systems as well. What matters to you about being a physician? What matters to you about working in the IT aspect of this? Why are you here? And how can we make that bigger and louder versus shining a light on all that's broken and how, you know, in, in a way we're kind of saying how you're failing at your job. Aren't you terrible at this? Mm-hmm. You know, that that really gives a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. why do you want to change from that?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and that, mm-hmm. that back and forth that you're describing – has played into this whole conversation which i think probably a lot of people have seen in mm-hmm. uh, you know in all kinds of articles uh, it's also showing up in the academic literature around this this concept of moral injury mm. so is the work i'm trying to do and the system within which i'm doing it actually injurious to me at a human level mm-hmm. and there's a lot of debate about you know is that term being used appropriately i think many of the original definitions said moral injury is when i hold a value and my job or some external force asked me to act contrary to that value on a regular basis. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, But I think the smaller version of that is what you just described. People saying, you know, we never had a conversation about this work that we're doing collectively Mm -hmm. and how it connects to what matters to me and how I show up as a human being and also as a professional, uh, as a member of the team. And when there's misalignment between what matters to me and what's the matter that we're trying to work on, mm-hmm. um, people start to get into this headspace of I feel anxious and stressed and really lose hope about what's happening and there's a moral component to that mm-hmm. um, that then makes it even harder to, to generate progress.
0: Well, and then, you know, the powers that be can come often come at that with shaming. Mm-hmm. And and the thing that came to mind as you're describing that is, is you basically described like the reputation of the entire millennial generation <laughs> is that, you know, and I, I'm one of them, an elder millennial, but I'm still in there, is that this idea of we want to show up and, and be at a work that, that matches our values. We want to do good in, in what we're here to do. And it's very easy to, to write that off in terms of, well, you just want everything to be sunshine and roses, not do the hard work. You just want to go have fun because fun is the thing to do. But it's a frame shift to then say, and I, I feel this way, um, that I will do the joy of hard work. If it matches the value, if I know what my hard work is doing to um, contribute to this larger practice, you know, it doesn't have to be out windsurfing every day, but I need to know that I am contributing in a meaningful way, rather than shaming this idea of, oh, you feel like you need to matter here. Mm -hmm. You know, what, who are you to show up and say what you're bringing to the table actually has a value. When all the study and research is saying that's exactly what we need to move the needle on health, healing, system improvement, bottom line finances, you know, take anything. If someone knows they are a valued part of the project, then everything rises, you know, a rising mm-hmm. tide lifts all ships.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the, the, the millennial <laughs> piece makes me chuckle because, you know, from, from the very early my very early awareness of this whole banter about what are millennials doing, why are they showing up with all these demands um, I, I always I, sort of had this i think contrarian point of view that like I think this large group of people is probably onto something um, and and now you know all the the literature that I've read Mm -hmm. um, supports that. There was just a study that came out uh, in the last couple years in the Harvard Business Review where they looked at um, in in a very large corporation where they'd done a bunch of surveying Mm -hmm. and they had great representation of all sort of generations in the workforce. Um, What is the difference between people caring about, for example, the cause that we're working on or not in my job versus career advancement or not? turns out, everybody's basically the same. Like, you know, we all at human being, at a human being level, care deeply about am i working on a cause that matters to me and mm-hmm. you know is my career in sync with that and providing opportunities for growth and advancement and what is going on with my community is this a group of people that i like to hang out with or not um these factors that i think contribute to our sense of wholeness and humanity uh that's under the surface for everybody and so i i think of it now that like the millennial generation has just reminded the rest of us that we need to pay attention to these things because yeah. they've always been there
0: we just had the audacity to say it out loud yeah and so the older generation goes kind of like but I didn't get that. (laughs) But we all want it. We all want to feel like we are part of something. It's how humans are wired. Mm -hmm. There's just no getting away from it.
1: Yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the compelling reasons for me, you know, in my work to say, this is why we need to keep working on the system because Mm -hmm. to the degree we can reimagine and redefine and reorient the system back towards these human ideas, principles, and values, um, then we get a whole host of wonderful positive side effects. You mm-hmm. get well being, you get less stress, you get better engagement, you get people who stay in their work, you get more creativity, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, again, this idea of sort of how do we get back to the humanity of what we're trying to do creates a different kind of organization. I love it. And this
0: conversation just creates so much hope around it because, again, it's at that individual level. We don't have to wait for the system to change. We don't have to wait for reimbursements to be different or technology to catch up. There is a piece of what you can do to create change in that community right there. And there is, you know, science and literature out there saying, you know, we, we can't undermine the power of placebo and nocebo and that comes in the form of how do we show up and what is the confidence and enthusiasm that we instill the placebo
2: mm-hmm.
0: or the nothing's ever going to change and this is just going to be what's happening forever nocebo whatever we set our mind to that's kind of the path we're going down mm-hmm. whatever the technical intervention is systems or healthcare, you know or, or whatever, I think pick a topic insert here.
1: Yep. Um, there's a a good friend and colleague of mine who taught me this frame around, you know, path of possibilities or path of limitations, which Mm -hmm. path are you on? You actually get to make a choice as an individual teams get to make this choice too, Mm -hmm. um, and you have a fundamentally different point of view and experience of where you're going, depending on which of those two paths you choose. You choose. And you know, oh, by the way, then if you do emotional mapping to those two paths, different emotions. So path of limitations tends to provose stress, anxiety, fear, frustration, loss, right? Path of possibilities, hope. Hope, awe, interest, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's something to this that I think is really powerful.
0: And then when you take those emotions, and all emotions can get mapped into the body, and where that stress and frustration goes into how our hormones feed into a stress cycle and become degenerative and caustic, or that hope and lightness feeling feeding into um, the the hormones and neurotransmitters that are more dopamine and serotonin, that also shows up in a body a different way. So. Mm-hmm even that mindset comes back around, impacts our individual health, which then we show up at work either as a healthy, clear-minded individual mm-hmm. ready to perform or a stressed-out, anxious, always sick individual, and it just feeds forward from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the fractals coming out of it are endless.
1: Yeah, and we see versions of that. There's, there's really cool, two really cool pieces of research that speak to this. So, you know, my... Uh, sort of experience that then mm-hmm. gets represented in physically, right? And how I go through the day in my own body. Am mm-hmm. I experiencing pain or frustration or tension and hypertension and all these other things that you're talking about? Um, number one, uh, when you look at the burnout literature, it turns out that um, about a quarter of my personal burnout uh, is not my burnout; it's your burnout.
2: Oh, really? So if you
1: come to work burned out, I pick up on that and it transfers over. I start mm-hmm. to worry about how am I doing? And so teams can actually spread this thing; it's contagious. And you flip that over. Same thing with well being, and I think mm-hmm. we all know this instinctively. You can think about times in your life where you've been with a group of people that like just routinely bring you down, mm-hmm. versus a group of people who bring you up. Um, so there's that piece, and then there's this cool, um, you know, uh, work around called Heart Math, which came out of some research at Stanford, which says you know at some distance, probably five ish feet,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, if you are tachycardic, I pick up on that without. You know, knowing it, and I become more tachycardic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're stressed, my stress hormone levels start to go up. So we're connected at a human level where it's not just my own, mm-hmm. you know, way of showing up in the world. Uh, there's that fractal piece where it extends to other people, and then it gets spread around as a team.
0: Oh, it's, yeah, and all of these pieces of it being contagious, they see that in drinking habits, in weight gain, in anxiety, and in stress. And it's just sort of a common knowledge in um, the healthcare, the alternative healthcare field of When you are physically working on and touching an individual, you are in that bubble of energy Mm -hmm. and you can routinely walk away with your patient's headache or your patient's low back pain as you just instinctively start to feel this heart math aspect of it. Um, and you kind of have to be prepared to to know, you know, where where they end and you begin.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We, we have a huge impact on each other and that, that interconnectivity, mm-hmm. which again goes back to what you were saying before about how leaders lead becomes one of the biggest factors in burnout and workplace turnover and happiness and all the downstream
1: effects. Right, that sort of cascade that we mm-hmm. see, just like you do in the body in terms of, you know, cascading yeah. effects of stress hormones.
0: Oh, yeah. I, we're, we're so interconnected. And I just... This this is where I think health and life gets so fascinating. I think I love that we're getting that positivity culture and, and these really ancient tools and ancient thoughts coming back into our modern world and our modern conversations. I think somewhere along the line, we had this real schism of science got the body and spirit got the mind mm-hmm. and never the two shall meet. When in fact, all of the ancient wisdom and modern research is saying you can't separate it and the more you try to, the more broken every system becomes.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my favorite, um, sort of, uh, two by two tables, which, you mm-hmm. know, for those who go to medical school or uh, <laughs> any of the biomedical science, we love the two by two table, I'm not sure why we do, but it's, it's present everything. It's but, like um, a little <laughs> this idea, so I, I, this really cool, um, uh that I picked up probably 15 years ago when I was working on my own burnout, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from a particular job, uh, that, you know, looked at energy. So if you think about the energy that each mm-hmm. of us shows up with every day, that there absolutely is a physical component to that. So mm-hmm. how I've slept, what I eat, what I put in my body, athletic performance is designed around that, but that's not the only kind of energy, right? There's also mental energy, mm-hmm. focus, concentration, presence of mind. Um, the, the ability to sort of flexibly take in a lot of information. Uh, then there's also emotional energy, which is a real thing. So mm-hmm. we all feel that at the emotional level as human beings. And then there's spiritual energy. And mm-hmm. in one body, all that stuff is connected. Um, it's not like you can just, and if you look at people who are really good at what they do, say, well, what that person has done is become incredibly skilled at mental energy, at concentration. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not usually the way it works. If you take an athlete who's amazing in his or her job or you take a CEO who's really, you know, an, an amazing leader, um, they're working mm-hmm. in all those dimensions all the time mm-hmm. because they're all interconnected.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I saw something, and, and I think to whatever spiritual connection it is and what you want to call it, that doesn't really matter. But the fact that you have found alignment in it and you've put that alignment into your whole world and into your whole life becomes the piece of all of those energies are together, mm-hmm. that physical, and you have that mental game strong and the emotional game strong. And whatever you want to call that spiritual component, it walks beside you through the whole piece as mm-hmm. well. And that is that well-balanced kind of, uh, of human coming into the world. Mm-hmm. I love it. I like bringing that up as well because that's, I think, still pretty taboo to talk about in a medical community is like, oh, no, that spiritual side needs to stay over there.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, y- even though we know, and, <laughs> and in so many places, yeah. you know, is pre- if you look at oncology care as mm-hmm. an example, you know, so many oncology teams have said, Um, you know, we need to have an interprofessional team and that team needs to include social workers and chaplains. Why? Mm -hmm. Because these spiritual and existential questions come up when you hear you may have cancer. Mm -hmm. And if we don't attend to that, people don't do well. Um, So we know it, but you're right. We've got a lot of work to do to say (laughs) it's actually there all the time. It's holistically
2: managed.
0: And however however you want to talk about it. And again, say there's not one right answer, but the answer needs to be in alignment with with your philosophy and belief. You know, I I see a lot of requests for, you know, um, particularly when you get into oncology or you get into kind of these scarier diagnoses of, I want to find a practice and if the doctor happens to be Christian or Jewish or has a good philosophy of Buddhism or, or whatever, all the better. Because when you talk about these big end of life discussions, Mm -hmm. you want to speak the same language Mm -hmm. and have that in alignment with all of the other pieces that come together with it too.
1: Yeah. Right back to what matters Mm -hmm. to you, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. What matters to the patient. So really, if we're going to sum up this entire conversation and I want to keep having this conversation for the entire afternoon, I'm loving it so much, but to, to sum it up is the idea of again, what matters, not what's the matter, but what matters and how do we want to rise from there, no matter what the problem is. Mm
1: I think that's a great place to (laughs) to put it all together.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Pierce for joining us today. This has been such an enlightening and uplifting and hopeful conversation. So thank you for coming and sharing your clinical and, um, hospitalist experience with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been really fun.
0: And if anyone has any more questions or concerns, what are some good resources? Where could you point people to, you know, if, if there's, um, anything to kind of promote out there?
1: So one of the things, Mm -hmm. um, I really like in healthcare around these ideas of Mm -hmm the salutogenic positive practices that we can do not only for care system redesign also for well-being mm-hmm. um are nicely housed uh in a website um that's been put together by Brian Sexton S E X T O N uh he is a patient safety researcher psychologist at duke who now does burnout and well-being research and mm-hmm. he has um a center for patient safety, but on their website is actually this whole subset of what he calls sort of bite-sized resilience tools. Really, they're these positive practices that we're talking about that you can mm-hmm. do with teams and individuals. That's a that's a great resource. Um, and you know, I think the uh, the other um, I think really interesting resource that's that's out there around this um, is is coming out of work um, that's being done by several groups around the country that are looking on uh, looking at how do you promote uh, humanity in healthcare. So there's a, a thing. I've been involved with called the National Task Force for Humanity and Healthcare. You can Google that. The website will come up. Uh, there's interesting work going on at Mayo Clinic and Stanford around this as well.
0: Awesome. Oh, I love it. That's some of the biggest names. So yeah. hopefully this will become more and more commonplace and, and run the mill to, to be human again. Mm-hmm. Why not? <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you again. And thank you to everyone listening and watching. Uh, appreciate you joining us for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement. We'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional help.